Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, you say that your word is given to help us trust Jesus for salvation and to teach, rebuke, uh, correct and train us uh, so that we live lives that are pleasing to you. We are ready to do the good you call us to do. Our Father, as we turn now to your word in Deuteronomy 23, we pray in your mercy your word would do its good work in our lives, that we would grow in our understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to trust him, and our thinking would be changed so that we give ourselves to what you say is good and right. And help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, as Kevin has said, it has been a tumultuous and a sad start to the new year for many. Uh, plans disrupted, uh, homes lost in Gippsland and northeast Victoria, and threatened even here in our suburb, and lives lost in the fires. Uh, these fires confront us again with our powerlessness and our smallness, with the uncertainty and frailty of our lives. At a distance, these fires in their extent and ferocity are unsettling and up close they are terrifying. And uh, some members, for some members of our congregation who had to leave homes on Monday or heard the helicopters passing overhead as the fires battled uh, the gorge fires, uh, those fires were uncomfortably close. Uh, starting the new year this way with the smell of smoke in our nostrils and 20 metre high flames on our TV screens throws up again the big human questions that are always there. Who are we? If it was all consumed in a moment, would our lives count for anything? And as we see destructive impersonal forces sweeping away homes, livelihoods, prosperity and peace, there are those personal questions. In this kind of world, where can we find peace and security? If all we had was lost tomorrow, where would we find hope? Now, uh, times like these always present a dilemma for a pastor. Do we change our routine to focus on what's happening, or do you keep on with routine? Uh, both, of course, have their place. A focus on what's happening acknowledges the trauma and the distress that many are experiencing. Routine gives psychological space from what can otherwise be an anxiety-provoking preoccupation. Now, in the grace of God, though you may not have thought it, uh, where we are in Deuteronomy, what we would be looking at normally, actually helps us answer those unsettling big questions about identity, about whether our lives matter, and actually can direct us to the peace and hope we need. Uh, Deuteronomy 23 will direct us to those answers as we look about what it as we look at what it says about who can belong to the assembly, the people of the Lord. As we look at what makes that assembly and people who assemble distinctive and then how that distinctive identity is expressed. And my hope is that if you're a believer in Jesus, as you listen to the word, you'll know the comfort and peace of belonging to the assembly of the Lord 
and be encouraged to keep on living out that distinctive identity in your current circumstances, whatever they are, fire or no fire. And that if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, God will be merciful to you by convicting you of the goodness and rightness of being amongst his people. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now that may not seem a very promising start. It may seem actually a very uncomfortable start as we come to think about identity and hope. But you see, it mentions the assembly of the Lord. What is the assembly of the Lord and why does belonging to it matter? Now the assembly of the Lord for Israel are those who can gather around the Lord to hear his word and be included in his people by believing and living according to that word. The assembly started with the Lord rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt and gathering them to himself at Mount Sinai where they heard him speak directly to them. There he entered into covenant with them, that is, he entered into a committed relationship with them where he promised to be their God. And the assembly of the Lord for Israel found continuing expression in their gathering together at the three great annual feasts, Passover, weeks and booths. And there they gathered in the Lord's presence to remember and to rejoice in his goodness to them. And the assembly of the Lord especially finds expression in the gathering the Lord commands at the end of Deuteronomy, where the people are assembled every seven years to hear the Torah, this book, the instruction of the Lord. Assemble, verse 12, the people, men, women and little ones and the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of the law. To be part of the assembly of the Lord is to be included in the Lord's people, those who know that the Almighty God has committed himself to them. It's to be included in his covenant, have a relationship with him, be at peace with him. Oh, it's to have a share in Israel's inheritance, which is a permanent place living in the presence of the Lord, in the land that he has chosen and given to his people, the land he blesses. It's to be able to live your life under his good rule, directed by his word. Being in the assembly of the Lord matters because the Lord is the only God. He is almighty. He can part the Red Sea, defeat Pharaoh's enemies, bring water from the rock. What he wills, he does. And he is a faithful and merciful God, a God of steadfast love. He will keep his promises. Kept by him, his people are secure. Having his promise, they have a sure hope. It's a wonderful thing to be in the assembly of the Lord. Now in Deuteronomy uh, 23, 1 to 8, the Lord gives regulations about who may belong to that assembly. Uh, those regulations make sense in ancient Israel. For example, uh, eunuchs are people who are both seen as not whole and therefore not acceptable in the presence of God and also those who can't sustain the family unit that is the heart of the transmission and enjoyment of the Sinai covenant. In addition, this instruction discouraged the cruel practice seen in other nations. 
in making eunuchs of boys for special roles in the bureaucracy or worship. Or again, verse 2, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. That makes sense for Israel. Those forbidden unions take in all those forbidden relationships in Leviticus 18 as well as those just mentioned at the end of Deuteronomy 22. You see, the Lord is saying those relationships will never be normalised and those who embrace them in defiance of the Lord's command must know that their families will never be able to participate in the life of the people who are defined by having the Lord as their king, that is, by commitment to doing what he commands. And I'm more than happy to talk about the Moabites and Ammonites, children of Lot, that is, children of an incestuous forbidden union. But I'm not going to do that now because I don't want us to miss the two big points in the details. And the first big point, it's an obvious point, is that it is the Lord who decides who belongs. He decides who belongs to his people or not. He decides who can gather in his presence and this must be so because it is his assembly. It doesn't have its origin in human initiative, human need, human plans. He and he only decides who can be members of the assembly of the Lord and who are excluded. Only he can grant the privilege of being in his presence. And the second big point is seen in verses 7 and 8. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. Here the Lord is saying that people who are not ethnically Israelites, not even in the Egyptian case descendants of Abraham, can come to belong to the assembly of the Lord. They come to belong by committing themselves to the Lord, committing themselves to live according to his covenant amongst his people. That is, even though the assembly is constituted primarily by Israelites, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, ethnicity doesn't define the boundaries of this assembly. The possibility of the inclusion of others tells us that even then this assembly is a spiritual body constituted by faith, faith in the Lord by receiving his word with faith. And so the assembly of the Lord, as we find it here, is both an expression of the Lord's commitment to keeping his promise to Abraham that he would be the God of Abraham's descendants and they would be his people, and it's also the means of fulfilling that other promise the Lord made to Abraham that the Lord would bless those who blessed Abraham, that Abraham would be the mediator of blessing to other peoples here as they're included in the assembly of the Lord. And as a fulfilment of that promise to Abraham, the assembly of the Lord at Sinai and in Israel's regular gatherings also becomes a picture, a type of the final and complete fulfilment of those promises to Abraham, the fulfilment that the Lord brings through his son, Jesus. 
You see, over time, many in Israel, as we know, showed that they did not belong to the assembly of the Lord. They excluded themselves by repudiating the word of the Lord. They didn't keep the covenant. They went and worshipped other gods. And they did not listen to the prophets the Lord sent, calling them back to himself. But the Lord was determined that he would keep his promise to Abraham. He would have his people. And through the prophet Isaiah, he spoke of a time when those excluded by the letter of the law would come to be included by faith. And I'm reading this from verse 3 of Isaiah 56. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and doesn't profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him beside those already gathered. See, here God promises that foreigners and eunuchs would be welcomed in his presence, included amongst his people by faith, by commitment to the Lord's covenant, a commitment seen in relation to the old covenant, especially in keeping the Sabbath. And he says that men and women from all nations would be welcome. For the Lord was determined that his house would be a house of prayer for all people. A verse quoted by our Lord Jesus, remember. The Lord was determined that he would gather others beside Israel to himself, gather them into his presence. And that is what he does through Jesus. You might remember that Jesus, when Peter confessed him to be Christ, the Son of the living God, Speak, spoke of building his church. Verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now when we hear the word church, we might be thinking of a building or an organisation or of what we do here. But the word church was not, an ecclesi a, 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 not a technical term for the first hearers. They heard Jesus saying that he would build his gathering, that he would build his assembly. You see, Jesus is saying that he will have an assembly which is actually the successor of that assembly in the wilderness that gathered around the Lord at Mount Sinai. Uh, that his assembly, his church, will actually be the fulfilment of God's intention that his people, that he have a people, and that that people be gathered around him by gathering around his word. And you notice that Jesus says that his assembly, his church, is an even better assembly than the one at Sinai, for it is an eternal 
assembly. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Death will not stop it gathering. Death will not exclude Jesus' people from gathering around his presence, his presence which is light and life. And the breaking of death's hold is guaranteed by the way people come to be included in Jesus' assembly. The basis for inclusion, for belonging to his assembly, is not physical wholeness or physical descent from Abraham or successful law-keeping, but faith in Jesus. That is, the basis for inclusion is sharing the confession of Peter that Jesus, the crucified Jesus, is Lord and Christ. And so we're included in this assembly by being forgiven through faith in him, through believing the gospel he commissioned the apostles to preach, that the Lord Jesus has died for our sins and risen with authority to forgive and judge. Death, the judgment on our rebellion against God, our despising and disbelief of his word, our thanklessness and disobedience, death, says our Lord Jesus, will not be able to separate us from our God, from his presence because Christ has died for our sins. So the Lord, his word says, decides on what basis people belong to his assembly, his church, his people. And it can only ever be that way. And he has now declared that it's not through human birth, through physical descent, but through faith in Jesus, the Lord come amongst his people to save. To be a member of that assembly of that people is to be secure forever, even as we know our lives here to be fleeting. To be a member of that assembly is to have identity in relationship with the living God. Now his children and he, our Father, it's to be included in his new covenant, his people. And that's an identity and worth that is not lost when all in this life is lost. Oh, to be included in that assembly is to know peace with the almighty God, the God who commands the winds and the flames. It's to know peace with him forever. For our sins in this new covenant will never again be remembered, never brought up in our relationship with the Lord to separate us from him. To be included in this assembly is to have an eternal hope, for his people will be gathered in his presence forever, a sure hope that loss or death cannot destroy, for the Almighty God always keeps his word. It is a wonderful thing to be included in the assembly of the Lord, to be in the church of our Lord Jesus. And the present wonder and security of belonging to this assembly, to belonging to this people who are gathered by the Lord to himself, is seen in what Deuteronomy tells us makes the Lord's people distinctive. <coughs> you heard it there in verse 14. The Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore your camp must be holy. You see, what made Israel's camp different? What makes their assembly distinctive? It is actually the presence of the Lord amongst them. 
He is present with them. And it says that his presence is their security, their hope of victory. Now, Israel knew that. They'd experienced for themselves the Lord giving them victory. They were on the banks of the Jordan now waiting to enter the Promised Land because the Lord single-handedly had humbled and defeated the most powerful empire of the time, the Egyptian Empire. Oh, and they had seen the Lord sustain them through the wilderness, give them victory over the Amorite kings, Sion and Og, turn Balaam's attempt to curse into blessing. The Lord's presence with them was their peace and their hope. And what was true of Israel in the wilderness is even more true of the church, the assembly of the Lord Jesus. Our Lord, before he ascended into heaven, remember, promised to be with us forever. And he is with us through his spirit. And so in 1 Corinthians he says to believers collectively, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God dwells amongst us through his spirit. And to believers individually, he says, do you not know that your temple is a body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now just think of that for a moment. Let the reality of that kind of percolate into your thinking. Uh, this means that believers are never alone, never forgotten, that the Lord is never unaware of their circumstances, or that they are never with nowhere to turn, because the Lord is with us. The Spirit of God is in us. That Spirit who actually assures us that we are God's children, crying, Abba, Father, in our hearts. That spirit who guarantees our eternal inheritance, who assures us by his presence with us, the Holy Spirit come to dwell with sinful people, that the victory over sin and death and the devil has already been won in Christ, that we have already been forgiven, made clean in Christ, already fitted for God's presence, so that all that Christ has promised us will be ours, that we will be raised with Christ. Oh, that spirit who changes us to be God's holy people. The assembly of the Lord, that is, the church of Jesus, is not a human project, not a human club, and to belong to this, to belong to Jesus' church, his assembly, is an extraordinarily, extraordinary privilege. Believers in Jesus belong now through faith to his eternal gathering. He is with us now by his spirit and we will one day be raised to his presence in the new heaven and earth. Nothing can take that away from us for our saviour is stronger than death. But the distinctive identity of the Lord's people, the reality that God is present among them, is to be expressed now in this life. And Deuteronomy guides us as to how the Lord's presence with us, which is our peace and hope, should be expressed. It's to be seen in what we avoid and in what we embrace, what we practice. In verses 9 to 14, we see that 
Because of the Lord's presence in the camp, Israel had to self-consciously maintain a state of ritual purity by, for example, dealing with omissions. God had already told them in Leviticus made them unclean. And by making sure that there was nothing indecent or not proper in their camp. And in this case, it's what many people regard as unclean, human excrement. But our Lord Jesus has made it plain that what makes us unclean is not what comes out of our guts, but what comes out of our hearts. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. And God's word is very clear, just as it's clear in Deuteronomy that the Lord's people were to shun everything that was unclean and avoided, God's word is clear that the people of the Lord Jesus must avoid those things that make them unclean. This is Paul in Colossians. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouths. We have to break decisively, says God, with those things that defile us. And we must do that not only as individuals but collectively. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 5 because the Spirit dwells amongst his people. There he says that he's writing to the Corinthians not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a viler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, believers in Jesus are a community of forgiven sinners. Praise God. But God's word says we must not tolerate amongst us those who think that being a Christian is compatible with keeping on doing those things that the holy God hates, that defile his people. That is unsafe for them, unsafe for them, because it deceives them about their eternal security. Right? It is unsafe for us because a little leaven leavens the whole lot. It's unhelpful to our community because it actually obscures our witness and leads us to be slandered. And it is dishonouring to the holy God because it associates him, it associates him with practices that he says he hates. And just as keeping the Lord's instruction would have improved the health of the Israelite army, so keeping the Lord's instruction undoubtedly you know, getting rid of what defiles us will keep us healthy as a community. But the driving force is not the health benefits to our life together. That's the fruit, but it's not the root. The root of our desire for holiness is awareness that we are the Lord's people and that the Lord lives amongst us 
Our holy God dwells with us. And believer, I hope you are so conscious of the presence of God's Holy Spirit in you that you deal decisively with what defiles, that you put it to death, which is a violent image of finishing with it once and for all. And I hope if you're a believer, you cultivate consciousness that you live in the presence of the Holy God every minute of every day, whether that's by prayer or reading his word or just turning to him, being conscious of who you are because that's the reality. God's spirit dwells with us. That is what makes us the distinctive people of the Lord Jesus and it means we have to turn away and have nothing to do with what makes us unclean. And being the Lord's people, we're told in Deuteronomy, must also show in what we do, not just in what we don't do, but in what we do, in distinctive behaviours. Moses, at the end of the chapter, gives a list of commands which set Israel apart from its neighbours, every one of which expresses the character of the Lord in whose presence his people live. So let me give you just an example or two. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns. Wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. All of the surrounding nations agreed that slaves should be sent back to their masters, whatever nation they came from. It was a universal norm, seen as essential for social stability, so important that a contemporary law code, the Code of Hammurabi, commanded the death penalty for those who harboured slaves, but not in Israel. Israel was to be different. They were to shelter all who fled to them. More, they were to give them freedom. They were to be free to live wherever they wanted. And Israel were forbidden to exploit these fleed slaves' weak economic and social position because they lived in them without family or protection. You shall not wrong him. Now, why was Israel different? Well, it's because of the Lord. The Lord is the God who frees the captive, who freed his people from oppression in Egypt. And to come to the Lord's land is to seek refuge in him. Now, as we saw in Deuteronomy 15, Israel did have a form of slavery which was used for debt relief, where the slave was to be released every seven years unless he or she voluntarily wanted to stay with his or her master. But that was actually a provision to preserve people's place in Israel, to preserve their inheritance. The Lord was a God who gave freedom to the oppressed, and here we see he expects his people to be like him. Well, what about the next provision? None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog, which is a way of speaking of male prostitutes, into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now the surrounding nations, and particularly the Canaanites, had cult prostitutes, people who, who were consecrated to the service of their gods who were fertility gods. 
Through sexual acts, these people were said to connect the worshipper with the God's power of fertility and so get their, as it were, their desires answered. Now this enslaved those given to the gods and it was a complete misrepresentation of the reality of the truth of God. The Lord, the holy God, had said already that blessing was to be found in obedience to the covenant, an obedience to his word, an obedience that ennobled and freed those who lived within it. And so this whole practice, this way of thinking about God and the behaviour it gave rise to was an abomination, completely detestable to him. And the practice was so tied up in oppression and lies that money and gifts earned this way could never be acceptable. As the Lord was holy, so his people had to be holy, have nothing to do with corrupt worship. Oh, and because the Lord's the generous God who's the source of all his, the good his people enjoy, his people are to be generous, as we see in verses 19 following, with a generosity that's designed to help their brothers and sisters to continue to enjoy the blessing of being one of the Lord's people. They were forbidden to exploit people's weakness. Uh, surrounding nations, we've got evidence, would charge 20% interest on silver uh, and 30 to 50% interest on grain. The Lord forbids the hard-hearted exploitation of the vulnerable and needy that would lead them back into slavery. And you'll notice that foreigners can be charged interest. Now, a foreigner is not a sojourner, a resident alien living amongst Israel. They had to be treated like Israelites. Now, a foreigner is someone not intending to settle in Israel, like a merchant who is engaging with trade throughout Israel, who could return to his own people if the venture failed. But in Israel, knowing that the Lord was generous and his purpose in saving was to give his people freedom in their land, Israelites were to be generous with what the Lord had generously given them. And the Lord made that a condition of enjoying his, continuing to enjoy his generosity. Oh, and yes, just as the Lord was a God who always kept his word, he makes it clear that Israelites were to keep their freely given word. Nobody had to make a vow, but if they did make a vow, they had to keep it. And yes, then there's this a little bit about going through your neighbour's vineyard. That's actually saying that the Lord expects people... Uh, to relate to each other on the basis of his generosity in sustaining its fruitfulness and also in his, uh, on the basis of his sovereignty in distributing ownership to who he willed. They were actually relate to each other, in a sense, with generosity and respect. So Israel were to show that they were the people of God, the assembly of the Lord, not just by what they avoided, but by distinctive behaviour that expressed the character of the Lord in whose presence they lived. As the Lord gave freedom, was holy, generous, faithful, compassionate to the needy, so they had to be. And while there is a lot we can learn about what it is to love our neighbour in these verses, a lot that the New Testament picks up on, again, we mustn't miss the big point a point the New Testament makes explicitly. And it's this. The behaviour of God's people, the way they treat others, should embody the truth of God in whose presence 
they live, in whose presence we live. Our behaviour should reflect his character and the way he has treated us. We should be distinctive from our neighbours because in our treatment of others we are to imitate our God. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Believers in Jesus should be distinctively the Lord's people by being like him, kind, forgiving, loving. And isn't that what Jesus said will mark us out as his followers, loving others as he has loved us. And so St Paul, calling the Galatian believers to give themselves to the work of the Spirit, to sow to the Spirit, says that believers are to be a people who, because they love that fruit of the Spirit, are characterised by doing good, doing good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of the faith. We should be marked out as a distinct people by our love, because we have experienced the love of God. The God who dwells with us is a God of love. And that love has to be seen, doesn't it? Whether that's in the way we respond to the fires, giving, opening our homes, volunteering with relief organisations, or in the way we deal with those who are weak and vulnerable in our generosity to the needy, or in the way we treat each other each week, as we cheerfully and reliably, letting our yes be our yes and our no, no, as we cheerfully and reliably serve. Oh, it's to be seen in the way we serve the community and to seek to share the good news of Jesus with them. Whether that's going to be in serving in GSF or Money Music or Kids Club or Youth Group or at AFES or a myriad of ways of doing good or supporting and encouraging those who do serve. We have to be marked out by love, a love that has as its source not in worrying about others, what, what others might think of us or in some barren sense of duty, but knowing the love of the gracious God who dwells amongst us, knowing that love for ourselves. Well, it is a challenging and unsettling start to this new year. If you're not yet a believer and you have seen how transient your life is, how insecure every material thing we labour for is, how it's able to be destroyed in a moment. Or come and talk about how you can find an enduring identity and peace, an identity and peace that can last forever through the Lord Jesus making you part of his church, his assembly. And if you're a believer in Jesus, hear tonight the encouragement of God's word. You belong to the assembly of the Lord, the church of God. You belong by God's grace, by his kindness in forgiving you and giving you his spirit through faith in his son Jesus. And that means that you and I face this new year knowing the Lord is with us. Oh, it means we face uncertainty knowing his purpose for us 
is sure. We face loss knowing our inheritance with him is guaranteed and can never be lost. And I hope you know the comfort of that. And knowing that comfort, resolve to live the distinctive life of those who have been gathered by the Lord Jesus around himself, brought to belong to his church by believing his gospel. That distinctive life where we show we know the Lord is with us by turning away from all those things that defile, those things that destroy life and joy and living that distinctive life of love in your dealings with all and especially with the household of faith. And I do hope in the new year you know that comfort and confidence and you are determined to show that you are the Lord's people by loving one another. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for your good word. And we pray that you would give us such a conviction of the privilege of being included by the Lord Jesus in his church, in his assembly, that uh, we would live for him. Our Father, we pray that you would give us such a conviction that you have given us your spirit, that your spirit dwells within us, that we would turn away from everything that defiles us, that makes us impure in your sight, all those destructive behaviours, and we would embrace the life of love, knowing that we have been loved by you, and we would live that life in doing good to all, and especially those who are of the household of faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.